Amen. All right. Thank you. Sophia, thank you for leading. He's a wonderful job today. Everybody else, thank you for so aptly supporting young Sophia. Man, these guys all make me feel so old. Oh, wow. So good to see everybody here. Love it. It's also good to see everybody online. can't really see you, but I know you're there. There's like a buzz in the room today. It's, it, it's palpable. All I had to do was promise that I was going to disturb you. And you had to show up. You had to see what that was all about. So it says something about you. It's interesting. Anyway, we are in week number seven of an eight-week series. So this week, next week, new series. Our series is called Starting Point. And in the series... We've been exploring the idea that everything, including our faith, has a starting point. You have to start somewhere. And for many, your faith started when you were a kid. And and somebody told you, here, believe this. And you said, okay, and you believed it. Then for other people here, your childhood faith began when another person, usually an adult or maybe it was a friend, they shared their faith with you and you said, Oh, okay. I got it. That's my faith too. But eventually, we all become adults. And for some people, there opens up a gap between what we learned as children and what we start experiencing as grown-ups. And each of us responds to that gap, to that discrepancy in different ways. Now, some people just hold on to that childhood faith, that childlike faith, And whenever someone challenges it and pushes back and says, well, what about this? Have you considered this? You go, no, I'm not interested. Because you're not interested. You don't want anything to come along and upset your sort of wobbly, fragile beliefs. Other people looked at the world around them and thought, you know, the things that I see in the world around me don't match up with what young me was told, and I'm going to go find my own faith, or I'm going to give up faith altogether, but I'm going to do it for myself. And then there's this huge gap. But there's still a desire to know the truth. That's why we're asking the question. So, okay, what would an adult starting point for your faith look like? And that's what this series has been about. Now, if you've missed any of these messages, I encourage you to go to our website, hammockstreetchurch.com, look under the resources tab. You can find sermons. You can listen to everything there. You can go to our YouTube channel. Just put in the search part of YouTube, Hammock Street Church. We'll come right up. You can click on that and you'll catch up. Now, today we're going to be talking about an important element of our adult starting point, And we've kind of been circling around this element for the past six weeks, but we really haven't highlighted it. So today, we're going to take a look at faith in a message we're calling Don't Stop. So, one more time, let's pray, and then we'll get at it. Father God, we thank you for this series, for this starting point series. We thank you for this opportunity we have to give some serious consideration to our adult faith, to give some consideration to when did our real adult faith begin or when should it begin or how should it begin. So God, as we talk today and go through your word, we ask that you would open our heart and minds and help us to understand the power of faith in you. We thank you for this time. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I like to do is I like to make sure we're all on the same page before we get started. So I want to establish a baseline definition of the word faith. So here it is. 
Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. All right, so that's a general definition of faith. Um, The writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament also gave us a definition of faith. Here's what it looks like in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. All right, so those are two definitions of faith. And before we press on, I want to say something kind of right up front. If you've don't feel like these definitions help you out, you're in at least my company. I don't, I don't either. I don't think they're very good definitions. And it's not that they're wrong. In fact, that the contrary is true. They're absolutely correct. But when I say they don't help me very much, what I mean is they're very vague. They're very broad. And when something is that vague and that broad, it isn't all that useful in specific situations. I mean, to me, those two definitions kind of say, well, faith is faith. That is circular. That is not helpful. So what I want us to do today is I want us to get to the root of the notion of faith. And to do that, we're going we're gonna to need to get our heads out of the what we would call the proverbial theological clouds. Like I want to I talk about faith, but I want to scrub it of all the religious connotations and focus on the practical definition and application of faith in general. I want to do that first, and then we'll be equipped to look at kind of the religious aspect of faith or a faith in God. So let's begin with the basic concept of faith. Whether you realize it or not, faith is something we use every single day. All of you are sitting down in this room. That means you had faith that the chair upon which you sat can hold you up, didn't you? I didn't notice anybody crawling under the chair to make sure it was structurally uh, sound or make sure the welds were holding or anything like that. You just said, huh, church, I kind of trust these people. I'm going to sit down. And you put your entire weight on the chair and nobody fell. Thank God, by the way, the lawyer in me says, whew, we avoided that liability. So, but we all use faith every day, but I'm not talking about religious faith yet. I'm talking about just faith, faith. So I want to introduce another word here to make it easier for us to talk about everything today. And that word is belief. So for purposes of our conversation today, we're going to use faith and belief interchangeably. All right. We express faith and belief all the time. For example, What I'm wearing today, the shirt I'm wearing today, I wore because I believed. I had faith in the fact that the weather app on my phone gave me reliable information. I knew it would be warm outside. I could wear short sleeves. My choice of short sleeve shirt reflects my faith or my belief in the weather prediction. Now, I want everyone to get a clear picture of what faith and belief are all about in general before we understand or try to understand how faith and belief work with religion. So the first thing we're going to do is I want to go through three general observations about faith or belief. Okay, so here we go. First observation is this. Faith is the ability to have faith or to believe in. I'm sorry, the ability to have faith or to believe in or to believe is one of the most powerful abilities at man's disposal. Having faith, having belief is a powerful ability that man has. I I don't think animals have this kind of faith. Animals don't have this kind of belief. They understand patterns, but they don't have faith and belief. So I want you to think about it this way. Anything that's ever been accomplished by human beings, 
anything that's ever been accomplished by human beings was accomplished because somebody believed that it could be accomplished. Everything begins as an idea. Everything begins as a belief. And as a result of those ideas and those beliefs, then we have the ability to make things happen. And sometimes the things that we make happen can change the world. Every problem that has ever been solved in the history of humanity was solved by somebody who believed it could be solved. Okay? Jesus expressed the very notion we're talking about in Matthew chapter 17. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. All right, that's where faith moves mountains. That's where that comes from. Nothing will be impossible for you if you have that faith. And we have all witnessed the way that that kind of faith can move mountains. Like, think about it this way. Think about medical mountains. Think about cures for diseases. Think about how cures for diseases have been developed because somebody had faith that the cure was possible. You know, when people first discovered diseases before science was as advanced as it was, people would just say, oh, well. Oh, well, you've got a disease. I guess that's it. You're going to die. But somebody came along and said, no, I think we're smart enough. I think we're capable. I have faith that we can take care of that disease. And in fact, a lot of diseases were cured because of that faith. Educational mountains are moved all the time when a person who others thought would never go on to college when they graduate from college. That is a mountain being moved by faith. Racial mountains have been moved. When Christians came along, and you need to understand this, the movement for the abolition of slavery in America and in England through William Wilberforce came along because it was Christians running it. Christians came along and began the abolition of the ancient practice of slavery, which, by the way, still exists in much of the world today. But the Christians came along and they got rid of it because they believed it was possible. There are legitimately... Countless examples of mountains that have been moved because somebody believed. A powerful belief can change the world. America, our country, was founded on a belief. Founded on a belief that there are certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we can have a nation. By the way, do you understand? Every other nation in history before America was based on ethnicity, was based on you're from, you're an Angle you have Angleland, England. You're, you're, a, you're Germanic. You have Germany. All this, all based on ethnicity. But America was based on ideas and beliefs and faith in those ideas and beliefs. America fought a civil war 150 years ago, a war in which 750,000 Americans died, all because of beliefs. Beliefs can change the world. When we believe something is possible, we look for a way to get it done until we find one. Here's a little-known fact, just as an example, about the power of belief when it comes to business, when it comes to sales. Did you know, and this is studied, that optimists, people who always choose to believe the good in every situation, optimists always, always will outsell their less optimistic peers. Did you know that? Even if the peers are more intelligent, the positive belief of the optimist always wins out. That is pretty powerful. So in contrast to the old adage, seeing is believing, the truth is the opposite. Believing is seeing. When you believe something, you begin to see something every single time. 
Not only that, it's often the case that belief trumps IQ. I'll tell you, so many times in my lawyer days, I watched brilliant, I mean ridiculously high IQ lawyers go into court and get their lunch just fed to them by less intelligent but inexplicably confident opponents. It's like these opponents prevailed in these cases through sheer faith and belief in themselves. If you believe you can, you eventually will. So to summarize the first point, belief empowers us to try, try again. And usually when we do that, we come out victorious. Now, our next general observation about belief before we get to religion is this. We're constantly on the lookout for evidence to support what we already believe is true. Now, the official psychological term for this phenomenon is called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency that we have as people to search for and interpret and favor and recall information that confirms or supports our prior beliefs or values. Now, the thing we need to know about confirmation bias is this. We all have it. We all have confirmation bias, and we all use it quite generously. We are all constantly, not consciously, constantly on the lookout for evidence to support the things that we already believe are true. Now, I think this phenomenon is particularly true of Republicans and Democrats. Did I make you a little nervous? I did, didn't I? And Libertarians and Independents. Everybody. This is true of everybody. We all do this. I do this. You do this. We watch something on television and we go, see, see, I told you, honey. Or, or we see somebody who comes on television and they give an opposite opinion to what we believe. And we go, you can't trust him. You can't trust her. That's why we don't watch this channel. That's what we do. We're constantly looking for things that support what we already believe. We're constantly filtering out anything to the contrary. That's how belief works. It's one of the things that makes belief powerful. And it's also one of the things that makes belief dangerous. It's, it's what makes belief extraordinary, but also misleading because as soon as we embrace a belief system, whether it's in about a, whether it's a belief system about an approach to business or, or studying or family or how to raise kids or how to be married, it doesn't matter what it is that we embrace. Once we embrace an approach to anything, we automatically begin looking for things to support what we already believe and filtering out all the things that we've decided not to believe. Everyone does it. Okay? Final observation is that belief is easy to maintain within a community of shared beliefs. Now, this explains a lot. In a community of shared belief, not only are you personally allowing information in to support what you already believe, 
And not only are you personally filtering out information contrary to what you believe, but now you're surrounded by like-minded people. You're surrounded by a community of people that are doing the exact same thing, allowing only the right information in and filtering out all of the wrong information. And in an environment like that, if you're ever to think, hmm, you know, I'm questioning my belief now. I'm not sure if what I believe is true. A dozen people are going to pipe up and go, no, 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 no. Of course, what you've been believing is true. And here's why. And then they'll give you an explanation. And then you'll go, oh, yeah, 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 right, right, right. That's why I got it. Silly of me to even mention it. Sorry, I disagreed. Now, that phenomenon goes a long way to explaining why when we're in the United States, as Americans, when we're looking out at the world, we can't understand why other countries react to world events in ways that are different than the way we react to world events. But after we actually go visit one of those countries or we meet someone in one of those countries, if we go live in one of those countries for a while, then we go, oh, now now I see it. If I viewed the world that way that they viewed the world, I would act the way that they act. I have to tell you, for me, many of my views about the way the world works changed a lot after I spent some time studying in Germany. I thought, wow, now I understand. Now I understand how Europe thinks about things. Now I understand how the rest of the world looks at things. It sort of altered my understanding of the world. Many of my views changed. And by the way, it works the other way too. People in other parts of the world look at us and go, why are Americans like that? And and we would answer, because we're right. That's why we're like that. But they don't usually agree. That's confirmation bias. That's confirmation bias at work in a community setting. And it works the same way, even when you scale things down. You can go to neighborhoods in this country where there's a community way of thinking and there's a community belief system. It's interesting in South Florida, there are a lot of Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods around here and there is a community way of thinking. All the neighbors believe the same way. All the neighbors act the same way. All the neighbors are doing the same thing. It's a community belief system. Similarly situated people think similarly. Wealthy people tend to think about a lot of things the same way. Disadvantaged people tend to think about a lot of things the same way. People in similar situations tend to believe the same way. And their communities support that phenomenon. All right? So that's belief and faith in a nutshell. Our ability to believe, our ability to have faith in something is powerful, but it's also potentially dangerous. But it's a powerful and dangerous thing that God has given to us. I think it's safe to say that our ability to believe may just be the most powerful ability that we humans have. When we believe in something, we can make it happen. We can bring it forth from nothing. And candidly, we can't even imagine a life without the ability to believe. Why can't you imagine a life without the ability to believe? Because imagination is inextricably tied to belief. You can't imagine what life would be like without belief because you have to use belief to imagine. Without belief, we couldn't project into the future and we couldn't change what could be and what should be. And if we can't change what could be and should be in the future, we are left without hope. So it's my guess, and it's just my guess, but I'm guessing that God equipped us with the gift of belief to make our lives better. 
Because we need that hope. Belief makes life better. Belief makes life richer because belief makes life more hopeful. All right, so you got all that? That's general belief. So now I want to talk about religious belief or religious faith. Now, I'm going to demystify this. Religious belief is just belief tied to something of a religious nature. That's all it is. Religious belief is not more powerful than general belief or regular belief just because it's called religious. Religious belief is powerful because it is a belief and belief is powerful. It's the power of belief itself that divides worlds, that divides families. It's the power of belief itself that creates nations. It's the power of belief itself that brings nations together. It's the power of belief itself that both solves problems and also causes people to kill each other. Belief is powerful, and a religious belief is simply belief applied to religious things, specifically religion or religious faith. Religion or religious faith is a belief that hinges on this one phrase. I believe that God. I believe that God blank. I believe that God answers my prayers. I believe that God loves me. Okay, so that's religious belief. The ancient Hebrews believed that a man named Abraham was called by God to go to a new place. They believed that God promised Abraham that he would be a nation. They believed that they would have their own land. So that's a religious belief. We believe that God will give Abraham and his people a land. If you get enough people that believe that together, you have a religious movement. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In 1948, when the state of Israel became a recognized state, so up until that point in time, it was a region, and then it became a recognized state, so many Christians believed that that was a sign from God that Jesus should be coming back any minute. Like they thought, oh my gosh, 1948, Israel's now a state. Jesus will be back by 6 p.m. We are done. And because of that belief, it gave rise to a movement inside of Christianity called premillennialism. Now, these are getting into topics of the revelation and what we call eschatology. And I don't have all this time to talk about that up here. But go with me when I tell you that premillennialism became entrenched as a large-scale cohort, a large-scale group within the evangelical Christian community right around 1948. Let me just give you a quick definition. Premillennialism is the view that Jesus' second coming will occur prior to a millennial kingdom, a literal thousand-year reign on earth that will then lead to a final judgment. Okay, that's what they believed. Believing became seeing. They believed it and they started to see it in the scripture. But it's not just a Christian thing. In about 610 AD, people in Arabia, it wasn't Saudi Arabia yet, it was just Arabia. They believed that the angel Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel from the Old Testament, gave a man named Mohammed a revelation about God. The revelation was written down, and before long, people throughout Arabia, in Mecca, and in Medina believed, and a new religion called Islam was born. If you believe deeply enough in any religious narrative, if enough people share your beliefs, it becomes a religion. It becomes an accepted religion. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you get enough people to believe 
in and to look for things to substantiate their belief and then to filter out all the other things that conflict with it. And you put these people in a community together, boom, you've got a religion. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all the other religions have a list of believe this is and believe that's that serve to bind their followers together. And that's what a religion is. And just in case, or just as in the case of all other beliefs, that that, that all other religions hold a belief or hold our lives a bit, people with religious beliefs are also looking to filter things out and let things in. People with religious beliefs are constantly on the lookout to find things that affirm their beliefs and always looking to filter out things that don't affirm their beliefs. That's exactly what religious people do. So what do we do with all of that? Well, one response to all of that can be just thinking, look, this whole religion thing, it's just some sort of Jedi mind trick, isn't it? I mean, these are not the droids you're looking for. No, it's just we're just allowing ourselves to be fooled where if you get somebody wearing a robe or a, or a special shawl or a funny hat and they, they say the same thing over and over, if, if they're in a compelling situation and they're a very persuasive and likable speaker and, and you get enough naive people together, next thing you know, you can have a religion. It's very easy to believe that... That's all religion is, just a bunch of people just believing the same thing because they're afraid of dying or they need answers to life's difficult questions. And if that's what you think religion is, you are 100% right. That is what religion is. But you could also just choose to believe that all religions are the same and just, just pick one. Pick one. You've heard it. All roads lead to the same summit. You've heard that before. There's nothing you could... Point two to prove that, but people say it all the time. Just pick one, anyone, become religious, because religious people are better off. And and now studies will show this. Social studies will show this. Religious people are happier than non-religious people. Religious people live longer than non-religious people. Religious people have better relationships than non-religious people. So just pick a religion, join a community of people that all believe the same thing, and you'll get those benefits too. doesn't matter if it's true. Just believe until it becomes true for you. It happens all the time. It doesn't matter what you believe. Just don't stop. Believe in. Come on. Hold on to that feeling. Street light. What is a street light, people? In the most cynical of all these scenarios, all these scenarios surrounding religion and religious belief and religious faith, that's what religious religion is all about. It's just, it's, it's just a ruse. It's just a, a shell game. And I hope that by pointing all of that out, I've led you all to begin to think about what you really believe and why you believe what you believe. Because as we've seen, faith, belief, is an exceptionally powerful force. Belief is a gift from God. It's one of the most powerful things on earth that we as humans can leverage to affect change in our world as well as change in ourselves. And if you take a few minutes to test that statement out, you'll see it all the time. It'll it'll jump off the page at you everywhere. Careers, political movements, social movements, even revolutions have all come together because of powerful, consistent beliefs. Believing truly does become seeing.
But now I want to switch gears a little bit. And I want to tell you why I am a Jesus follower. Why I am a Christian. And it has everything to do with what we just talked about. And if you're a Christian, I bet you never heard this before. And I bet you never heard this before because sadly we've fallen into this misguided habit of treating a faith in Jesus, treating Christianity no different than believing in anything else in the world. We just consider it to be another belief system. We have settled for the notion that if we just get everybody together and we sing the same songs and we listen to a bunch of soaring, encouraging messages, we'll we'll feel something. And we'll go, wow, I felt something. Must have been the Holy Spirit. Even though we can have no way of knowing whether it's the Holy Spirit or not. But, But I want you to know, that is not what we're doing here. That's not why we're here at all. And as you wrestle with your starting point for your faith, it's important that you see beyond the things that make all beliefs, including religious beliefs, similar. And understand and own and internalize what makes a faith in Jesus so unique, so unprecedented, so supernatural. When Jesus died, the people who were closest to him believed that he was dead. Nobody expected to see nobody. Notwithstanding all of Jesus' teachings, all of his parables, all of his miracles, all of his wisdom, all of the rhetorical victories that he had over the, over the ancient and aging and sclerotic religionists of his day, notwithstanding all of that, when Jesus died, they all believed that he was dead. In the end, Jesus' followers believed that he was a charismatic, powerful speaker whose words got him killed, whose words got him murdered on a cross. If we could ask Peter at that time, Peter, what do you believe about Jesus? Right after Jesus was crucified, Peter would have said, well, now that he's dead, looking back, I guess he was just a powerful speaker. We wouldn't keep his mouth shut. We tried to tell him. We tried to warn him, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. But he insisted, and now he's dead. After Jesus died, Peter didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah anymore. How about John, the one closest to Jesus? How about him? John, what do you believe about Jesus? John would have to answer, well, I'd hoped he was the Messiah, but he's dead. So clearly, he's not the Messiah I'd hoped for. He's obviously not the Son of God. Andrew, what about you? What do you believe about Jesus? You spent so much time with him. You saw him do so many miracles, Andrew. Andrew would say, well, I absolutely hoped he was the Messiah. I really believed for a while that he was, but I don't believe it now. He's dead. After Jesus died, every one of them, every single one of them, every one of Jesus' disciples stopped believing. They stopped believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And they started worrying about themselves. They started worrying that their associations with him had put their lives at risk. I want you to understand, this is unlike any religious movement in history. See, with religious movements, they typically follow a pattern. The leader starts 
the movement. And when the leader dies, his followers kind of come together and, and they determine, okay, it's, now it's our job to make sure that we keep the teachings of our teacher or of our leader alive. And they, they organize the teachings and, and they set up systems and they set up places to disseminate this information. And they make sure to elevate their leader to a lofty status, to even the status of a martyr or the status of some kind of enlightened being. I mean, look at the movements that we've seen in the world. Look at the movement that Gandhi started. And then his, his followers just kept it going. Look at the movement Muhammad started. His followers kept it going. Look at the movement Joseph Smith, the founder of the Latter-day Saints, what we call Mormonism. Look at that. Look what he started. It kept going. Even the Jewish Rebbe, and this is, this is kind of a next-level stuff, a guy by the name of Menachem Schneerson, he founded the movement called Chabad, or Chabad, some of my uh, friends like to say. You see the buildings all around town. It was founded by one guy, some, some old guy who lived in Brooklyn. His name was Menachem Schneerson. This is true of all martyrs and religious leaders, but it was not true of Jesus. Jesus taught that he was, for lack of a better way of saying it, Jesus taught that Jesus was the point and the whole point of his ministry. That's what he taught. It was all about him. Jesus' entire ministry was built around who he claimed to be, not what he taught. So when Jesus died, all of his followers lost faith. They did not feel motivated by Jesus' death to take his teachings and distribute them all over the world. They didn't. They were afraid to go out of their houses. They were terrified. They felt that, oh no, now all our credibility is shot. And on top of that, the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders consider us outlaws. Everything Jesus had said was premised upon whom Jesus claimed to be. And Jesus was dead. So as far as his followers were concerned, it was over. Not even his own mother. None of them could shake the feeling that when he died, the Romans must have won. When he died, the Jewish authorities must have prevailed. The people that knew Jesus the best, the people that had spent three years with Jesus, the people who brought the story of Jesus to the world, stopped believing in him when he died. They believed that when Jesus was dead, he was dead, and he would stay dead. And this is the reason that I am a Christian. Because sometime later, just a few weeks, not years, not decades, weeks, that same group of cowards, and there's no other way to describe them, that same group of cowards who ran for the hills when Jesus was arrested, the group that included Peter. Peter was the tough guy disciple. That had always been just hyper-zealous for Jesus. He was so fired up for Jesus at one point that he cut off a Roman centurion's ear. But he cowered at that very intimidating middle school girl who aggressively asked him if he knew Jesus. And Peter denied any connection with him at all. A few weeks later, that coward and the other cowards with him went into the streets of Jerusalem again. To the very place where Jesus had been publicly, brutally humiliated and murdered. And they began to preach about him. And they did not preach about the things Jesus had taught. Hear what I said. In the beginning, in those early days, they didn't preach about the things Jesus had taught. 
There is no record, there is absolutely no evidence that any of Jesus' followers taught about Jesus' parables or the stories that he told or even the things that he said in the Sermon on the Mount. There's no evidence that that's what they preached about Jesus. Instead, they went into Jerusalem and this is what they talked about. We read about this in Acts chapter 5 verse 30. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. So what did they talk about? I won't boil this down to just a few points, four points. Here's what they focused on. First off, you killed him. That's what they said. You, as in you, as in you right there in front of me, Ron, you. You killed him. You Pharisees, you non-believers, you killed Jesus. But God raised him. You might have thought that you'd gotten rid of him forever, but you didn't. God brought him back. How do we know? Because we've seen him. We've seen him. We and hundreds of other people saw him alive. So now, say you're sorry. That's it. Now repent. Repent. That's what they said. They spoke only about his crucifixion, his resurrection, seeing him after that, and God's need for Israel to repent. And they were not alone. 20 years later, not 200 years later, 20 years later, the apostle Paul was in Athens, which is a long way from Jerusalem. Even if you had traveled there by plane, it's going to take a while. You got to get there the way Paul got there. It's going to take forever. And he was talking about Jesus. And the Athenians were like, what, who is this guy? What is this, some kind of new religion? Remember the story? It's found in Acts 17. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? They call him a babbler. Like, what are you on about? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. What was Paul saying? Here's what he said, Acts 17, 22. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that's Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. And here's what he said, verse 31. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone. How? By raising Jesus from the dead. Do you know why the church survived the first century? Do you know why we believe? Do you know why I'm a Christian? Do you know why you should be a Christian? Because when Jesus died, nobody believed. Nobody believed. All the saints, St. Peter, St. John, St. Matthew, all of them, cowards. They ran. They lost their faith. That's their own testimony about themselves. I'm not making that up. I'm not throwing rocks. That's their own testimony about themselves and about each other. But then they saw something. They didn't just believe something. They saw something. They saw the risen Savior. And when they saw the risen Savior, something happened inside of them. And they were changed. And for the first 40 years of the Jesus movement, that message was the same. God didn't just say something through a prophet or something like that. God did something for the whole world. God raised a man from the dead. We don't just believe that Jesus taught true things. We believe that something happened. That belief that something happened is the foundation of our faith. We believe that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and that he was raised from the dead 
And we don't believe this because the Bible says so. The Gospels hadn't been written, and they weren't written for a long time after the event. The Gospel writings in the New Testament were not compiled and put together for about 250 more years. So in the first 250 years, according to some estimates, millions of people became followers of Jesus, not because of the New Testament, because there was no New Testament, not because they read it. There was nothing to read. They became followers of Jesus because eyewitnesses were so extraordinarily convinced of what they saw. The church was not launched because of a book. And the church was not launched because of teaching. The church was launched because of a resurrected Savior. And the men who ran came back. And they said, we saw it. We saw it with our own eyes. Take our lives if you want. But we're not willing to die for what we believe. A lot of people die for what they believe. They said, we're willing to die for what we saw. A resurrected Jesus. And that fact still holds today. In the 21st century... We don't believe because the Bible says so. We believe because Matthew, an eyewitness, wrote about it. We believe because Mark, who spent time with Peter, wrote about it. We believe because Luke, the guy who said, I'm going to investigate all these things and put them into chronological order so we don't miss anything. We believe because he wrote about it. We believe because John, John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who actually took care of Jesus' mother, we believe because he wrote about it. We believe because James, the little brother of Jesus, we believe because he wrote about it. And also there's an added reason with James. What would it take for you to believe that your big brother was the Messiah? It must have been something. It wouldn't happen. We believe because Peter the guy who trembled when he was confronted by the middle school girl and ran away like a coward. We believe because he wrote about it. And we believe because Paul, who was a contemporary of all these other witnesses, Paul, who had seen the risen Jesus himself, wrote about it 20 years after the resurrection. All those people, all of them, who ran away after Jesus' death, who believed none of it after Jesus' death, they saw Jesus alive again. And then they believed the whole thing. Now, in the first message in this series, I said that a fundamental question you have to wrestle with when you're thinking about a starting point for your faith is the question, who is Jesus? And here's the thing that I hope you'll take away from this message today. A single event changed how those people closest to him answered that question. Before the resurrection, who is Jesus? They would answer whatever. They'd answer A. He was a teacher. He was a good man. misunderstood, whatever. But after the resurrection, who is Jesus? It was a completely different answer. So do you know what that means? It means that when you pray, you can believe that God hears your prayers because the resurrected Jesus taught us that when you pray, God hears your private prayers. It means that you can address God, our creator, God, as Father. Because Jesus, who died for our sins and who was raised for the dead to substantiate everything he taught us, because Jesus taught us that when you pray, you pray our Father. It means you can believe in heaven, not because the Bible tells us so, but because Jesus, who died, who was buried, who came back from the dead, it's because Jesus told us so. It means that when you go through troubled times, 
you shouldn't be surprised because Jesus told us you're going to have trouble in this world. But don't worry. Take heart. Have courage. I've Jesus has overcome the world, which meant nothing when they were watching him die on a cross, but meant everything when they saw him raised from the dead. See, I'm not a Christian because I believe stuff. I'm not a Christian just because I believe the same stuff as the people I associate myself believe in. I'm a Christian because there was proof and there was a resurrection. So who is Jesus? A single event changed how those closest to him would ultimately answer that question. So now it's time for our final question, and it's this. Did you find any parts of this message disturbing? If you did, which part and why? I want you to think about that. Were you disturbed by my saying that you don't believe because the Bible tells us so? A lot of people get upset about that. Did my telling you all of that make you feel like I undermined all of your faith, all the stuff you'd always learned, but then I was trying to build it back up and you don't think I did a very good job building it back up? Is that why you're disturbed? Did you find any parts of the message disturbing? If you did, let me know why. Because wrestling with that question may be an important part of your being able to discover your new starting point for your adult faith. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for not just leaving us with another list of things to do or another prophet or person simply to believe in, but thank you for giving us proof by raising your son from the dead. And Father, for those who are wrestling with these questions today, I pray that they would have the honesty to wrestle openly as we've tried to discuss these things openly as well. And Father, please give us each the wisdom to know what to do with the things we've just heard. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.